Sanity Rules is recorded on the ancestral unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, Stolo, Squamish, Kaikite, and Coquitlam nations. We are grateful to uh, live on this land. My name is Larissa. I am a first-generation Canadian with my father from Nederland and my mother from Jamaica with ancestry in Nigeria, among many places. And my name is Angeline. I'm a third-generation Canadian with my ancestors coming from Germany and Ukraine. Hello everyone, welcome to Sanity Rules. My name is Angeline and I want to talk about mental health. Today I'm joined uh, once again with uh, my lovely co-host Larissa. Hello. And uh, we are here to talk today about um, housing and the impact of safe housing and uh, the connection between that and mental health. So I know both Larissa and I have had... um, a sort of, we wanted to talk a little bit about our own experiences, um, and I know Larissa, what 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 makes what makes your, you know, wheels turn when it comes to housing, and and how what's your experience been here in in Vancouver? Um, <laughs> so, for me, when I first moved to Vancouver, um, I moved probably about twice a year for like the first three years that I lived here. Wow. Um, yeah, it was awful. I yeah. hated it so much. Um, and it was because like the housing was in terrible condition or the landlord was really awful. There was always something wrong that like I, I was always pushed out of the housing that mm-hmm. I was in. Um, and then finally finding the place where I live now, um, that was that was amazing. Like not having to move um I think it's been almost 10 years that I haven't had to move. Wow. Um, but I rent from an individual uh, in their basement. And so if something happens to, to them or to their family, there's, there's still an aspect of instability there. Like, I don't know what would happen if, you know, if they decide to sell the house, right? Because they're, yeah. they're elderly. They may choose to downsize, downsize their house. Um, and so it's like there is there is still that little bit of worry in the back of my mind of like where am I going to be living in five years or ten years? Yeah. Um, and it's it's not a huge worry for me now, but definitely when I was moving like every six months, um, it was it was just so awful and so stressful, um, and it it really just it took up so much of my mental energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how people. like survive I don't know how people uh, do things like I don't know how they conduct their daily life when they're in housing that feels dangerous or feels unstable or where they know they could be pushed out at any minute Mm -hmm. um you know those three years of experiencing that definitely like gave me a different perspective on the value of housing for sure oh for sure yeah and so you've lived at your current place for for 10 years now yeah so um your your rent's got to be re- reasonable. <laughs> yeah, so that's the other thing is like if I if I leave this place, I don't know that I would be able to stay in my neighborhood. Yeah. Um and you know, I live close to transit. I I bike places. Uh I don't know that I could afford to get a car again. I mean, mm-hmm. I had a car before I moved to Vancouver and for the few, first few years that I lived in Vancouver. Um but it just yeah, there, there's so much like stressful other factors. It's not, it's not just the housing necessarily, right? Like it's going out to look at, look at viewings mm-hmm. and it's meeting landlords and hoping they're not creeps and yeah. hoping they're not lying to you. And mm-hmm. 
hoping that the house is actually in the condition that it looks like it's in, right? Because there's so many people who get rent evicted and then the landlord just paints it and is like, <laughs> now it's up. <laughs> now, now it's worth a thousand dollars more per month. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm super grateful to be where I am, but there is still just that little bit of worry of like what, what's in the future. No kidding. No kidding. And there, <laughs> like, I, I just re- recently been looking at viewings and within a matter of days, I've seen the same listing go up three to $500. Oh man. That's so much. Like so much. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's, it's really, I mean, what can you do? What can you do if you don't have a guarantee on where you're living? And as renters, we just don't. Yeah. And it's, it's troubling because, um, I mean, I live in Vancouver proper and 53% of Vancouverites are renters. Mm -hmm. And so you would think that our government, our democratically elected government should be representing us. Mm -hmm. They should be representing, um, the needs of, of renters. Mm -hmm. And that really does not seem to be their focus or their interest uh, at all, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, a lot of neo- neoliberal governments see managing suffering as their job rather than trying to actually resolve issues. Mm-hmm. And so Vancouver takes a lot of actions, but it's often a lot of like half measures, underfunded, um, not in consultation with the people it's going to affect. There, there are a lot of missteps that they make that are obvious and preventable, Um, but they, they don't really seem to be concerned with actually addressing the housing crisis Mm -hmm. in, in Vancouver and, and in the whole lower mainland. And I mean, it's a problem that really is like, it's across Canada now. There are lots of places where we're seeing housing crises. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the link between that sort of, uh, scarcity mentality Mm -hmm. and, um, your mental health. How, how does, like, how did that impact you when you had to move around? Um, it just, I mean, so one of the things, um, that's part of it is that homeowners see renters as being very like transient Mm. and they see us as being, um, you know, unreliable or, or finicky or, you know, they see us as being problematic in a lot of ways. And, and, and a lot of them like, landlords often will just not even see us as human and just see us as a source of income. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, but meanwhile, you know, all of those moves that I made were within 10 blocks of, um, <laughs> where I live now, oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like so many people who, who move within the city of Vancouver, they're moving, you know, fewer than 10 blocks away from where they already live. So mm-hmm. we're not transient. No. We're just subject to the whims of landlords. Yeah. And because they hold the power and because they feel like they have ownership of the land, they feel entitled to do whatever they want sometimes without really considering, oh, my actions are impacting a human being, not Mm -hmm. just a source of income. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know since I I haven't ever done the math, but I was just thinking about since I moved to Vancouver six years ago, I've probably moved six times. Yeah. Um, And that was a lot. Like, so that amount of time in half the amount of time (laughs) would just be very stressful. Um, Like living all over um, and having my rent go up, like Mm -hmm. from when I lived in Calgary to what I'm paying for rent now. Yeah. It's, you know, in such a short period of time to have such an increase in rent because I've moved so much and there's no rent control. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. 
and I know like my own experience with, um, you know, being just not without a safe place to lay my head for two days when I was lost in LA and having the only people who would help me would be like people who didn't have a house, Mm -hmm. people who had nothing. And they were the ones to help me. And the perception of, um, like the perception of people who don't have a house Mm -hmm. or a home, um, that perception is really, um, just something I just got a taste of. And Mm -hmm. so that is something when I think of like, what, what do I do in 10 years if I'm still renting and I can't afford a place to live? Mm -hmm. That sort of, um, stigma just kind of sits over you and it's, um, it's, it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to know that, you know, um, when, like I first moved here, for example, um, I went down Maine and Hastings and just to see the people who didn't have a place to live, I was like, this is something that is fundamentally wrong with our society. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that we need to do something about and we're not. And now people who have good jobs, who have good, you know, ways of making their own income and have, you know, what would have been a strong income five years ago now are at the risk of like on the verge of, of being in that same situation. Yeah. And it's, it's super, it's super troubling because, you know, particularly with the pandemic, it's shown us that like, you may not feel like you're uh, living paycheck to paycheck, but maybe you're one bad event from, from being paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I had an experience, um, a few years ago where a lot of, a lot of stuff just like changed sort of very chaotically in my life. And, um, I was not, I was not able to pay my rent by myself. Um, and luckily I was able to rely on my parents to help me. Mm -hmm. But during that time, I thought a lot about how, if I was not lucky, if I was not privileged to have parents who could afford to help me, Mm -hmm. um, temporarily, I, I don't know where I would be right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know what situation I would be in. And the toll that it took on my mental health, like I was like, I, I to be clear, like I never actually lost housing. I was mm-hmm. never actually threatened with no. becoming unhoused, mm-hmm. but that threat weighed on me so much. And it took years and years and years of not being in that situation anymore to start to, to, to get over that feeling and to start to feel safe again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's again, like as a person with a lot of privilege, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's so much more chance for people to slip through the cracks uh, in, in our society. And there's no, I mean, you mentioned Maine and Hastings, um, you know, a certain number of those people are not necessarily unhoused, but they're living in dangerous and inadequate housing mm-hmm. um, that, that where there, there's no place to just be. So their living room is the street, even if it's not necessarily their bedroom as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, watching the city of Vancouver and the province and the country all, you know, try to mm, distribute the blame elsewhere. Mm. You know, Vancouver says, well, it's not our, you know, people come from everywhere to be unhoused in Vancouver. And so we shouldn't have to bear the burden. And that's true. All three levels of government should be participating to work to actually solve this problem, um, you know, and and the city should not be waiting for other government bodies to say, OK, we're going to take this seriously. Like mm-hmm. every level of government, once someone in there realizes that the problem is serious, which I don't know how they could possibly not know it at this point, mm-hmm. 
they should be saying, okay, what are we going to do to help address this problem as opposed to just saying, well, they're not doing it, so we're not going to either. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody seems to want to address it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how like even people who are in, like, I don't even understand how people who are in the housing market, who own houses, how like they're, they're the cost of housing, like for a, to buy a townhouse is $1.3 million. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody like, um, um, millennials, for example, um, you know, for them to even get into the housing market. And so it just perpetuates this rental, uh, you know, renting versus landlord kind of situation where it's just, you know, um, just, uh, <laughs> just more and more people are being in, in that situation, whereas we, we should be working towards more and more people actually having a forever home. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned millennials too, like millennials are 26 to 41 years old and millennials are not able to enter the housing market. So picture being 41 if you're, you know, one of the elder millennials Mm -hmm. and still not having accessibility, you know, sometimes, sometimes it gets painted as like, oh, well, you know, they're young and they, they haven't established themselves. And it's like, by the time you're in your forties, that's when our, our parents' generations were like well-established, you know? No question. Of course, they would they would be at least paying their own mortgage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's something that is like further and further away. Um, and you know, the government uh, often takes actions that are you know I mentioned before, like it's not in consultation with the people who are actually affected. It's not actually considering um, you know the lives of day to day Canadians. Mm-hmm. And an example of. Um, a housing crisis policy that actually accelerates the the crisis is um, tax-free down payment saving plans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the federal uh, federal budget has has one of those in there now, and really what that does is it drives up the prices um, because it allows more people to compete for units. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it it's presented as like, oh, this is going to help like solve the problem, but it actually just it makes it worse. Yeah. Um, and it's because what the government is looking at is trying to tinker with the market as opposed to just, you know, in the 70s, they were actually spending money on housing. Mm-hmm. They were buying housing and supplying housing. Um, and then in the 80s, the, you know, the market changed. There was a crash and government started to claw back all these policies. And now Canadians don't look with the same expectation that the government should be filling that need, even though housing is a human right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's. I mean, we we've talked about we've done a little bit of you know investigating, and you and I have read different articles, and we'll we'll post those links and, and that sort of thing. But we, it was interesting to me when you told me that um, you know there wasn't there didn't seem to be a concept of um, being unhoused in the indigenous culture. Yeah, and how that contrasts with like. The society that we live in, you know, why why are we not looking at that that way of life? Like, why are we disregarding this way of life? Yeah, um, and again, like you know, Angie and I are both settlers. We're not indigenous, mm-hmm. so we're not experts. But um, you know, what I see in indigenous worldview is that uh, wealth is often communal. Um, and you know there are indigenous people who right now are, are working to reclaim their um, their their culture, and and that's part of it is mm-hmm. that wealth is communal; it's shared among among your uh, your friends and family. 
basically. And, and everyone and everything is seen as having a spirit. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, I'm not sure how being unhoused could exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if everyone is seen as a full human being with, you know, deserving of a certain quality of life, how it, it, it just doesn't square. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, within a system of capitalism, um, everything can become disposable. Both people and land can become disposable if it will be profitable for someone else. Right. Um, and within that context, it makes sense, you know, with the, the housing market being a market as opposed to just a housing supply, mm-hmm. um, you know, it encourages this way of, of looking at something that should be recognized as a human right and instead saying, well, if if someone can't profit off it, then how can we even operate it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's unfortunate because there are solutions mm-hmm. to to housing issues um but because neoliberal governments just want to um, manage suffering as opposed to actually resolving the issue they're not really trying to to solve the homelessness issue yeah. you know they're looking at um making sure that like the nonprofit industrial complex can continue to operate mm-hmm. they're looking at continuing funding the police and you know beating people up and pushing them off where they're staying as opposed to actually using that money to to pay for housing yeah um you know there are all kinds of of missed opportunities and missed solutions that have been uh created within the communities that are actually affected most by the housing crisis mm-hmm. And there's not really a lot of uh, there's not really a lot of respect or consideration for actually doing those things. And it seems to like really um, like there's there's this class system, right? Mm-hmm. There's this system in, in our culture where it's like, oh, if you make a certain amount of money, you have this big house. If you don't make any money, you have you you don't have you know you may not have a place to live. There was it was something like seven uh, percent when I looked at it. Of people who actually do have full-time jobs but are still yeah, unhoused. Yeah, I've seen that too. And you I've know? seen people who are like sort of invisible uh, unhoused where like they're living in an RV or they're staying on someone's sofa. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the whole, the whole system, like the, it, none of it should be the way it is. No, it really shouldn't. <laughs> um, you know, like our, our ability to work has nothing to do with whether or not we deserve to live with basic human dignity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just the idea that, you know, some people maybe choose, I, I have had the experience where people choose, no, I, I choose to be unhoused, but part of the reason might be is that, you know, you go into certain types of housing and there's certain rules, there's regulations, you can't have guests, you're treated like you're you're uh, a subpar individual. Um, and so who wants to live when they feel institutionalized? Who wants to live like that? Yeah, exactly. Um and, you know, there's an issue with, like, uh, supportive housing is provided in Vancouver. Um, but a lot of it, exactly like you said, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't actually meet the need. Um, and instead, what happens in the supportive housing is that often people are then subjected to receiving mental health care from their landlord. Mm. Um, which I, I can't think of anyone I would less want to receive <laughs> mental uh-huh. health care from. <laughs> <laughs> than like a building manager. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's just, it's completely inappropriate to um, to subject people to that. And yeah. so it makes sense if you're if you're dealing with all these rules and you're not allowed to have have guests over, 
Um, you're not allowed to address conflict in a way that makes sense for your community. Um, why, why would anyone want to live like that? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to live like that. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, just because someone has a lower income, why would they want to live like that either? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, I know in, in a number of different uh, cultures, like, like I, I did a little bit of research about um, just how many people there are in Vancouver. Um, and it was interesting to see there was something like 9,000 um, in BC that are unhoused. Mm-hmm. 39% um, were Indigenous. Yeah. And you and I had talked about it, and it was less than, uh, they're less than 5%. Of the yeah. actual population? So like three to five percent. Quite the imbalance. <laughs> yeah, it's very targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at, um, you know, the way, gen- generally speaking, when there is some type of public service crisis in Canada, Indigenous people do seem to get the worst end of whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to that end, the, uh, I believe it was the UN released a report um, saying that Indigenous people around the world uh, often have the most trouble attaining safe and secure housing, but particularly in Canada. Yeah. Um, more than 10,000 on-reserve homes in Canada are without indoor plumbing, and 25% of reserves in Canada have substandard water or sewage systems. So that's a quote from this report. Mm-hmm. Um, this problem, uh, I, I, I see uh, this problem is particularly bad, it seems, in uh, up up north uh, mm. for the Inuit. Yep. Um, and again, like as a settler, it's it's hard to say who who has it worse, but it, it is it is really really bad in uh, up up north. Um, and you know, not to say that it's not really terrible in other places too. Yeah, <laughs> of no, course, of course, of course. Like no matter where you live, if you experience that, it's you know, it's <laughs> it's devastating. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've we've seen places like Medicine Hat where now it's creeping in again, but they have done something about yeah. being unhoused. They 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 had they had the magic potion. Yeah, they <laughs> had know? a plan. They had, they a, had plan. a plan. And they did it. <laughs> and they did it. Uh, <laughs> um, and it, it's creeping up again, but that just goes to show you that we can do it too. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's, it, you know, it's not lost on me that like Medicine Hat is... Um, you know, the, the, the mayor who implemented that, uh, is conservative and he was, he was turned over to that way of thinking, um, just by the numbers, by the evidence, by the fact that when they started doing it, it, it worked. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it's not something that is being tried in places where the majority of the population is BIPOC or particularly where the majority of the population is indigenous. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so going back to um, thinking about what's happening up north, um, there used to be an MP uh, with the NDP called Mumilak uh, Kakak, mm. and I apologize for the name pronunciation, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, in, in 2020, she went on a three-week tour um, of her territory to gather information about the housing situation, Um and it was what she saw was so uh, heart wrenching and so awful that she needed two months of leave um, just to deal with the stress and like the PTSD of yeah. of seeing everything that she saw. Um, 
And I saw a lot of comments at the time that this happened of people saying like, oh, well, you know, she's young, like she's 25. So she, she, at that time, she was the average age of the people she was representing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people were like, oh, well, she's, she's young and she's silly and she shouldn't have done this. But, you know, what an awful way to look at it, because really what happened is she went out and she saw the direct effects of the government's genocidal actions against, yeah. uh, against her people. Um, and so I just want to read some of the quotes that she came out with her report, um, and we'll share the link to the report sure. um, in the episode notes. But so here's a quote. In the short, abusive, at times complex and one-sided relationship between the federal institution and Inuit, we have seen increased tensions within and between Inuit communities. During my travels, I witnessed many arguments, people expressing frustration and anger from individuals in all positions. The lack of access to housing and safe spaces has not only created tension in homes, but has created tension between families and communities. It was clear that the result of being unable to provide enough housing for a community could cause high tension even around the conversation about housing itself. There were meetings where I had to redirect the conversations to the purpose of my visits, to hear from community members, not to become frustrated with one another. The federal government does not have to interact or resolve these disputes, but they are the unseen cause of them. Um, you know, so I feel like that really talks to the the quite severe mental health issues yeah. that can be created by um, by insufficient housing. So in Nunavut, it's an issue both of having not enough housing um, and also of having housing that is is completely inadequate mm-hmm. um, in terms of the construction methods that are used. Um, it, it seems like a lot of the housing is like designed for Southern Canada's climate. Mm. Um, you know, Mimalak mentions in the report that a lot of times the entrance of the house is where the wind faces. So the, the, the door gets battered with wind. And then because of that, it can also freeze shut uh, when it's cold. Yeah. And it like Inuit people could have mentioned to the construction crews like, hey, don't build the house facing this way if the government had ever been interested in like getting feedback from right, them right? to say like, don't like here, here's a really basic fact <laughs> yeah. about where you're building this house. Don't yeah. do this. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that to me, that, that report really highlights the, the, the mental health and the emotional strain um, uh, of this, of this issue. I can only imagine like mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I got a taste of what it feels like to, to feel like I don't have a safe place to write, to lay my head. And to, to, to know that some people experience this ongoing in their lives, sometimes from the time that they're born mm-hmm. where they don't really have, like they quote unquote, have a, a roof over their head, but is it adequate housing? Mm-hmm. And some, and to live with that, yeah, it has got to be extremely dent- detrimental to your mental health. For sure. And like, and because there's a lack of housing in general, um, it means that, you know, people who should not be living together are forced to stay together, mm-hmm. right? So family members that are, are not necessarily safe mm-hmm. in their homes are forced to continue living, um, you know, living with people who are, who are not dealing with their, their trauma in, in an appropriate way mm-hmm. or in, in a healthy way. Um, there's also the situation of like people's homes get assessed by the Canadian government and then their children get taken away because their housing is not good enough for the kids. And, you know, so it's like, the government is providing the housing. The government doesn't think the housing is good enough. And so the government takes away the kids. Yeah. Um, this is a continuation of residential school mentality mm-hmm. from the government's side, right? Like 
they've literally created the problem and then they've decided the solution is to to dehumanize the people that they're inflicting this mm-hmm. on and to make the problem worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, likewise with the, we were talking about the supportive housing where the landlord is providing mental health, it's the same type of attitude of basically trying to find ways to incarcerate Indigenous people yeah. um, without, you know, having to arrest them necessarily, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's just, it's another way of getting into that, um, that sort of continuation mm-hmm. of the legacy of, of, of doing that type of thing. Is there any, um, in your research that you did, was there anything that um, indicated what um, sort of we can do to advocate for um, Indigenous housing specifically? Um, I did not find that specifically. I just I just but... thought of that, and I just thought that would be something that would be, you know, if I could encourage anybody to do is to try and be an advocate for that yeah. specifically. The the alarm it's an alarming number when you think of thirty nine uh, percent of people mm-hmm. in BC alone are uh, out of nine thousand are Indigenous and homeless and unhoused. Um, you know, we should specifically be. Um, assisting with that that should be something I I would like to be an advocate for um personally yeah I think um I didn't find anything specific for that but I think I mean writing to your MP writing to the prime minister saying that these are important issues that they are election issues for you um and and following up with it because that's the thing is that oftentimes you know there are these movements for things and it, it it enters the news um, and there's a lot of activity, but then something else happens mm-hmm. and something else becomes the focus and people don't follow and track. Um, you know, the, the government really will only do what the public forces them to do. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not there forcing them to do something, they will not do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people can, can do a search and find indigenous groups that they can support. Um, they can read Mumalak's report and really see the, the, um, the depth of the problem. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a fairly short report. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also support, like, you know, maybe specifically asking for the, um, I believe it's the Inuit Housing Commission, mm-hmm. Inuit Housing, Nunavut Housing Corporation, um, to receive proper funding because mm-hmm. they are severely underfunded by the federal government. Um, and, and the thing is that the, the government has a responsibility to fund housing like that's part of our treaty agreements is that we owe housing to indigenous people because we have taken their housing away through our own land use um so this is this is not something extra or optional or frivolous this is something that we have already been owing and now we are in debt Mm -hmm. we're in a serious debt right now Mm -hmm. and so more funding is needed to um to make up for that debt Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah um, so uh, in your research, was there um, other anything else you wanted to mention before we kind of get into what we can what we can do about this problem? <laughs> um, I think I also just want to mention, you know, going back to the supportive housing mm-hmm. um, that it fits into this neoliberal government story that individual shortcomings are um, are the cause of homelessness, right? That there's some moral failing. You've done something wrong. You yeah. didn't work hard enough. You did this, you did that. Um, and the fact is that we, we, just, we need to shift our mentality as a people towards what can we do to support life mm-hmm. as opposed to how can we divide people up between who deserves what and who doesn't. Right. 
Um, we just we need to start thinking every single human being is valuable. Every single human being uh, deserves to be safe, deserves to be loved, deserves to um, to to know that they are seen as as a human being yeah. by the institutions that they have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, thing, things like supportive housing, what they do is they um, they allow these high rates of eviction. Um, so that's another thing is that, you know, the, the BC government has s- rules and regulations about what landlords are allowed to do, but they, for some reason, are not applied to, um, like tenant protections are not applied to people who live in supportive housing. Um, right. And additionally, like because of those high evictions and other, other issues, these people get labeled as being hard to house. Um, and so that again, it pushes the blame back onto the individuals, um, and it supports this idea that well, you know, the government is trying, but they, they just they just can't do enough. It's right. just not possible right. to do what we need to do. We've we've put a band aid on the situation, yeah, and it's bleeding through. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so it's like really, what what leads a person to become unhoused? is um, stagnant wages, mm-hmm. right? Stagnant welfare rates, gentrification, uh, financialization of the housing market. Um, you know, people who are systemically poor and who are sort of in this situation of legislated poverty, um, they have not done anything wrong, right? I mean, you look at the disability rates, for example, for Vancouver, that's legislated poverty for every disabled person who is relying on those payments. Yeah. You look at um, EI payments, it's always uh, 55% of your wage. So if your employer abusively underpaid you, then the government will abusively underpay you even more, even more. more. Um, You know, and so this attitude of like, we have to hoard our resources and we have to make sure that there's enough for the rich people. We don't need to do that. No, we just don't need to do that at all. Absolutely. No, it's, it, it, it seems like, you know, it, sh- it, it, it does, to me, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard to solve. Yeah. Like, why are we putting so much energy into, like, what are the things that we can do? Like, why, what, what can we do about this? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously the, the government could, could do a lot if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, you know, they could, they could just start buying housing, buying land and, and, building housing on it and then providing it to people. Mm-hmm. Really, that's what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, figuring out a way to do that in a, in a way that is respectful to um, Indigenous rights and Indigenous sovereignty, like doing it in negotiation with the, the host nations. Yeah. Um, but as, as people who are not in the government, mm-hmm. uh, what we can do. Yeah. Um, so there's a great organization called the Vancouver Tenants Union, um, and I think they're sort of starting to go by Metro Vancouver Tenants Union at this point. Um, so they have 2,500 uh, members and their demands are real rent control, eviction protections, affordable housing and better incomes for all. Um, as well, they stand for no displacement on stolen lands. Um, so rent control, um, that's something that they, they won a partial success uh, so, okay, so let me just explain. Rent control, that would be tying the rental rate to the unit rather than the tenant. Okay. So, you know, right now, if someone moves out uh, or is forced out by their landlord, um, 
that landlord can raise the rent by any amount that they can manage mm-hmm. to get someone to pay. So, you know, it could be a, a 400% rent increase. There's no regulation on that. Um, whereas, you know, when the tenant is still there, there's only, I think it's like 1.5%. Yeah, that yeah. they're allowed to raise the rent per year. So um, the city of Vancouver, for some reason, wants to call this vacancy control, I think, to be confusing. Mm. Um, but it is rent control. So vacancy control is something that the VTU got a partial success with in uh, 2021. Um, Vancouver implemented a policy to apply uh, vacancy control to about 3,000 uh, SRO hotel units. So those are for people who are living in the downtown east side. Okay. Um, that obviously is something that would be beneficial. I, I, th- I think that should be the law across the country. Yeah. Um, but definitely in Vancouver and Toronto and, you know, the surrounding affected areas that are also in the middle of this, uh, this housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Vancouver Tenants Union is a great uh, group to at least look into. Um, you can donate, you can volunteer. Um, they have neighborhood chapters, they have provincial work that they're doing, um, and there are specific working groups as well. So there's like the Defend Broadway working group. Um, that's, you know, we could do a whole other podcast about that. But yeah. basically, um, you know, there's a development that is planned for Broadway that doesn't really take into account the fact that renters want to stay in their neighborhoods and stay in their homes um, and it, it sort of seems to see renters as people who can just be shuffled around and moved into wherever the city finds it convenient to, to stick them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, the VTU also worked to get BC to enact a temporary rent freeze um, from 2020 to 2022. And uh, it used to be a part of the VTU. There's another group called Rent Strike Bargain. And so this group is fighting to unionize buildings for collective rent negotiations. So this would be something that is similar to like a workplace union where people can collectively bargain for wages and rights. Um, so that's another that's group yeah. Yeah, yeah, to to join as well. Um, and then in terms of uh, staying educated, uh, the TAI has a series called Hot Hat Housing right now. And I think we're going to include that link as mm-hmm. well. Um and then lastly, um, my favorite uh, uh, MP, <laughs> Leah Gazan. Um, so she, in 2020, she introduced Motion 46 uh, to the House of Commons. So that's for the establishment of a guaranteed livable basic income. Yes. Uh, she got 45,000 signatures for that, and mine was one of them. Nice. And on the 16th of December, 2021, she introduced a private member's bill, uh, c twenty c Two two three, So that's National Framework for a Guaranteed Livable Basic Income Act. So this bill proposes a GLBI, Guaranteed Livable Basic Income, for all people in Canada over the age of 17, would not require participation in the workforce or an educational training program, and would consider regional differences for, um, you know, the cost of living uh, and, and would also, um, not, not seek to, uh, claw back other services that are being offered and that people are relying on. Um, so anything that you can do, support Leah Gazan, go to her website, um, yeah. sign, if she puts up a petition, sign it. Yeah. Um, and, and again, similarly, like if you're writing to your, your MP and to the prime minister about, you know, wanting to see, uh, Nunavut housing, corporation I believe it was called mm-hmm. uh, having that you know that funded properly also write and say that you support this um, motion for a guaranteed livable basic income yes 
Um, you know, the, the government has received many, many indicators um, that that it's time for a GLBI in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, 50 senators, bipartisan group, uh, signed a letter saying, you know, now's the time. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of organizing and Leah is sort of, um, I think, the, the biggest fish swimming towards this this really great thing that, that we would all benefit from. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. support her. Yes, absolutely <laughs> support her. It, I, I think that'll make such a difference for us to have a, a guaranteed basic income. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand why we, don't, we wouldn't move towards something like that. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, that would resolve, uh, you know, that along with vacancy control, for example, would really resolve a lot of the anxiety that people are living with. Mm -hmm. Um, and it would, it would really allow people to, you know, just have some clarity in their life path, right. Just to be able to think through like, what do I actually want to do? What's possible? And not to just have this weight of like trying to survive kind of yeah. you know, interfering with, with the ability to think through other, other decisions that you want to make. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we'll definitely post, um, those resources. Was there any other resources we wanted to talk about? Um, anything else we can do? Um, I think that was it for the, what can we do? Awesome. Um, obviously there, you know, there's always more that you can do. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but um, just getting in the, taking the next step, getting in the right direction, I think is, you know, if you're passionate about it, it's, um, it's something I think I can do more. Yeah. So I, you know, I appreciate those resources and we'll post them for anybody who's listening. And, um, as we, um, wanted to follow up on, uh, the, before we end the podcast, um, we, we did, uh, an episode on the convoy and we had promised, you know, we'll follow up on this in some time and just, see what's happened. So I, I know Larissa, you had a little bit of information on that. Where are we at with, uh, what's happening? Um, yeah, following up with it has been a little bit frustrating for, yeah. for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it seems like, so, um, Tamara Litch was one of the people who's, um, you know, one of the organizers and, uh, at the end of May, um, let's see, she was, I believe she was allowed to be out on bail okay. I think that's what it, or maybe she was seen as not be, not being in violation of her bail that was what it was okay so part of her bail agreement is that she is not supposed to publicly support anything related to the convoy mm-hmm. and she's also not allowed to travel to Ottawa okay um and meanwhile like she has she received some jewelry that was pro convoy and it was posted on social media so that's a violation of her yep. of her bail agreement um, and then she was also given a Freedom Award, um, a George Fre- George Jonas Freedom Award. So George Jonas uh, is a guy who supports Israeli Zionism and who also beat his wife. Um, so not really a great person to be receiving an award. Mm, no kidding. <laughs> from, Jeez. <laughs> um, and so... For some reason, these two breaches of her bail agreement were not seen as breaches of her bail agreement. So it seems like the government is not really taking it as seriously as they should, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it doesn't seem like they've really taken it seriously this entire time. Yeah. And you can picture like if it had been a bunch of BIPOC and particularly indigenous people who mm-hmm. had done something like this, 
you know, everyone would be in jail for the next 30 years, mm-hmm. no question. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, it seems like she's getting kid gloves and she's getting exceptions made. And, and um, I think she even admitted that, you know, wearing the jewelry and having it posted publicly was supporting the convoy, <laughs> which she's not allowed to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's our, that's our follow-up. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's un- unsatisfying. It's very, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm really, I don't know, I, I, I just, I'm just, I, I, I the whole situation just seems ridiculous to me, and I, I just, I hope that it does get resolved soon. I hope that we actually take a look at exactly like the root causes of this convoy and the root of where they came from and address some of those fundamental issues that are going on that are making people think that this is like a good thing to support. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, going back to the guaranteed livable basic income, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Leah had posted that this, this is actually one of the ways to address that because people turn to white supremacy when they are scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, not necessarily that we want to like coddle, coddle all those fears and tell them that what they're doing is okay, but the way to prevent people from getting to that point is to have them not be in situations where they're going to be scared about scarcity and scared about how they're going to survive. Yeah. So if we have the guaranteed livable basic income, um, that takes out the need for a lot of competition that, that people feel in a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. And that would actually make us all a lot safer. Mm-hmm. If everyone knew that they would always have stable housing and that they would always have their needs met, there's a lot less um, possibility that they will look to someone else to blame for why they're in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, counterintuitive as it may seem, that's a, that's a way to actually address the issue. Yeah. Um, unlike, you know, what, what has happened is a lot of like, oh, well, we need more police. It's like, well, the police didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, we need more regulations. We need more this and that. And it's like the, the, the things that they're looking for are things that will actually just reinforce the system that has created the problem to begin with. <clears throat> um, and ultimately, like the government of Canada does not want to take white supremacy seriously because if they start looking at white supremacy that is external to the government's functioning and saying, okay, well, you know, we have to root out these citizens, the next step is to look at themselves and to look and say, okay, so white supremacy is the founding concept for the entire existence of a Eurocentric government on stolen indigenous land. Um, White supremacy is the founding concept for how we uh, deliver healthcare and education Mm -hmm. and definitely policing um, and basically all of our public services. There's this attitude of like scarcity is real and therefore we have to hoard our resources. Mm -hmm. Um, Scarcity is manufactured by capitalism. Mm -hmm. Scarcity is manufactured by a white supremacist worldview. Mm -hmm. And so if the government actually gets into some of those core issues, then they, they have a, um, uh, an, an existential crisis on yeah. their hands. Yeah. <laughs> Take a look at themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's not, it's <clears throat> not, it's not surprising that the government is not at, that the court system, I guess, specifically is not, is not doing enough yeah. to address the situation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good way to loop it all around. Basic income. Yes. That's, that's, um, that's our, uh, you know, I, if that would be a big victory, I think, as if we, 
Yes. We really push that. Yes. And it would be a victory for everyone. Yeah. Every single person in yeah. our society would benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. It's uh, always a pleasure. Um, I think we got into the topic real lively. I think we could go on for a lot longer if Most we really definitely. wanted to. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, we'll post some of those links. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, and, uh, we hope to see you again. Follow us on Instagram and, uh, thanks again. Bye.